Hi everybody, my name's Alan Robson and I'm going to be presenting to you a podcast, Alan Robson's Grizzly Tales. And we're going to talk tonight about murder. Not a fake, not a fairy story, not a myth or a legend. Things that really have happened around us. Now, when you think about execution, you think maybe of a hanging, or maybe death by lethal injection. Well, not all executions throughout time have been this way. One of the executions that lasted the longest happened way, way back in 1626 when Count Henri de Chalet was condemned to death. He had taken part in a plot to kill the king and it was given that he had to be executed in public so that everybody can see this is what happens if you mess with the royal family publicly beheaded so the day began he was marched through the streets pelted with vegetables and tomatoes and the odd half a brick he got there fairly badly damaged they marched him up to the top of the platform where the headsman's block stood but the headsman was not there the executioner they couldn't find one the regular executioner had been poorly hadn't been able to come didn't even send his axe so they had nothing to cut his head off with so eventually they found a soldier who was on guard nearby who had a ceremonial sword blunt as blunt can be the sword would have to do but without an executioner you had to find somebody willing enough to cut someone's head off with a blunt piece of metal a replacement was drafted in at the very last minute and the Count's head was hacked off, literally hacked off. But it took 29 strokes to make it happen with that blunt blade. And they checked him at 10, and they checked him at 20 strokes. And poor old Count Henri was still breathing. So there's a lot of horror and hell out there. And there's a lot of people willing to prey on the innocents. Now, an awful lot of murder tends to be about sex. Either you're not getting it or someone's getting it with your partner. And yet, there's also a strange kind of compulsive desire by some of the people who have murderous tendencies to befriend the police. As soon as a crime is committed, thieves, robbers, murderers have found themselves coming forward to give helpful information to the police somehow. I can't understand why anyone would wish to. Maybe it's a, a ego trip for them to know that they had committed a crime and the police were not bright enough to know that they had done it, putting them higher building them up but I've got a story about a man from Sheffield he was born back 
1832 on the 14th of May. His dad was a shoemaker and he wasn't a particularly good school kid, but he could make things with his hands and he ended up becoming an apprentice at a local rolling mill. And they thought he was going to have a fairly decent future there until a nasty accident when a piece of red-hot steel fell and rammed into his leg, leaving him with a permanent limp. To be honest, he was lucky not to have lost the leg. Also, a bit further on, he had a couple of fights and his jaw was fractured. Now, his jaw had been fractured before as a child, but having it fractured again meant he was able to contort his face. In fact, people used to say he should have gone in for the local gurning contests where they put a toilet seat over your head and you've got to make the ugliest face possible. Well, he became a bit of an actor. He used to love taking part in pantomimes and amateur dramatics. He learned to play the violin a bit and, uh, to be honest, they even nicknamed him the modern-day Paganini when he played at local halls when he was rarely paid in money, more often in beer. Around about the age of 20, he was looking to earn a living and realising that people didn't want a limping, gurning violin player, he decided he was going to become a thief. And he thought if he was going to become a thief, he was going to become a damn good thief. He wasn't particularly successful at first. In fact, between 1851 and 1866, he was jailed four times. He got a month, four months, six months, and then finally seven years when the magistrates and lawyers and solicitors were getting damn sick of him. When he wasn't in prison, he just used to travel from town to town because if the police didn't know him in a new town, he could usually get away with a little bit more. He did find love, a woman called Hannah. Hannah Ward. She was a widow. She already had a son called Willie. And they came back to Sheffield together in 1872. They even set up a little shop for themselves in a place called Darnell, which is just a few miles east of Sheffield. He was a picture framer, a gilder, and also he collected and sold musical instruments and a load of tat, like we would call car boot stuff now. He used to sell on the street to passers-by. By 1875, this guy was 43, and the police described him and this is after he committed a murder, as very slightly built, height five feet four inches, grey hair, lacking one or more fingers of his left hand. He had cut marks on the back of both hands, cut marks on his forehead. He walks with his legs wide apart, speaks somewhat peculiarly, as though his tongue was too large for his mouth, and is a tremendous boast. Now, he had a huge, bushy moustache, and this made him look at least a dozen years older than he was. And 
He wasn't particularly ugly, but he was agile and very strong. He was also completely selfish and rather shrewd in the various things that he chose for himself. His family loved him, his new family, but he loved himself rather more than them. In early 76, he got involved with his neighbours on Britannia Road in Darnell. Their name was Dyson, Arthur Dyson. He was a big bloke, six foot five, and a civil engineer. He'd had a good career on the railways. And he'd met his future wife, an Irish girl called Catherine, when he was in America. This man had travelled at a time when very few people in the provinces did. She was tall, buxom. She had a, a bright blossom in her cheeks. And the pair of them were, were rather too fond of going to the pub for a drink. They married in Cleveland, Ohio in 1866. Came back to uh, England seven years later. And then, suddenly, bumped in to our friend. I haven't given you his name so far. His name was Charlie Peace. Now, Peace was asked by the Dysons to frame four pictures, including a picture of uh, the man's own mother, Dyson's mam. And he became friendly with them. And uh, he soon got a bit too keen on the rather buxom and flirty Mrs. Dyson. And he said to her, if I make up my mind to a thing, once I've said it, I'm bound to have it. Now, she unwisely decided that a little fling with Charlie Peace, a man a little younger than her husband, although didn't look it, um, she decided to go for it. They visited a few pubs far away from where they lived, music halls and fairs. In fact, their secret assignations ended up by them both chipping in for an empty house where they could meet. It was in between their two homes and peace took on calling on the Dysons at any time, especially meal times, until Mr. Dyson put his foot down. He didn't know there was an affair, but he knew Peace was sniffing around. Mrs. Dyson continued her nasty and rather mucky fling, sending him very rude notes, telling him when the husband would be out and the times he'd be in so he would stay away. And by June of 1876, Arthur Dyson went round to Peace's house to have it out with him and said you are forbidden to call on us anymore stay away from my wife and he even wrote on one of his visiting cards because everybody had cards back in those days Charles Peace is requested not to interfere with my family and he threw it into Peace's yard and this is something that caused Peace a bit of trouble because Peace's wife found it and said, what's this all about? And suddenly there was a shouting match there. Peace could not endure staying away from a woman he wanted, especially when the woman wanted him. Kate Dyson spoke to the Sheffield Independent reporter. I can hardly describe all that he did to annoy us after he was told he wasn't wanted at our house. 
He would come and stand outside the windows at night and look in, leering all the while. He had a way of creeping and crawling about, and of coming upon you suddenly unawares. He wanted me to leave my husband. On Saturday, 1st of July in 76, Peace decided he was going to be even naughtier than he normally was. He walked behind Mr Dyson and he tripped him up on the street and he fell over. And he met Mrs Dyson later on outside her house as she was complaining to three neighbours about the assault on her husband. Peace strode in demanding to know, are you bitches talking about me? And when asked to repeat what they were saying, Kate Dyson just let it loose. He was becoming a total embarrassment. Peace then, from his rather scruffy and worn brown belt, pulled out a revolver and he said, you do know I'll blow your bloody brains out and your husband's too. Whoa, this was getting a bit real. They weren't going to take a chance of anything building up and getting worse to the point of explosion. They went to the magistrate and a warrant was obtained for his arrest. But before they could get to him, he ran off with his family to Hull, where Mrs. Peace found a job at a cafeteria and she supervised cooks and waitresses for another family who owned it. The Dysons had a fairly quiet time then, undisturbed. Everything was going pretty well. I mean, all of August, nothing. All of September, everything's going fine. Surely it's all over and done with now. But then... On the 26th of October, they were still a bit worried that Charlie Peace would come back. Or maybe Dyson himself still wondered whether or not his wife secretly was saying one thing to him but still seeing Peace behind his back. So they decided they were going to move to the other side of Sheffield and they moved across to Bannercross Terrace just off Eccles Hall Road and uh, like the old song said they got a, a barra and the furniture dragged across the city on that barra with everything including as it happened an old cock linnet and it dillied and it dallied as the song said they were waiting for it when it arrived at their new home that evening so they could take possession of the house and have something to sit on and something to sleep on. However, Peace walked out of the front door and confronted them. And after he and Dyson had a little bit of pushing and shoving, Peace said, You see, I'm going to be here to annoy you wherever you go. So then Dyson said, Don't forget there's a warrant out for your arrest. You're going to prison. You're not going to bother anybody. Peace said, I don't give a damn for the warrant. I don't care about it. He said, there's nothing in that warrant, nor for the police. It's between me and you. 
He then walked into a grocer shop called Gregory's, which just happened to be right next door to Dyson's house. And he bought some tobacco. And he hung about on that street a lot, always seemingly disappearing whenever a policeman came by. A month later, on Wednesday, 29th of November, 1876, all of Britain getting ready for Christmas. And there was peace again, hanging out along Bannercross Terrace between 7 and 8 in the morning, popping into Gregory's as usual, always asking for Mr Gregory, who was out. So he requested a woman in the street to take a message to Mrs Dyson, asking her to come and see him. The woman told him to deliver the message himself, told him to get stuffed. So he loitered for a while. And then, just before eight in the evening, a labourer, Charles Brassington, was walking down the street. He was on his way home. He'd been working on a building site in Sheffield. And he was just outside the Bannercross Hotel, thinking, do I go home or do I pop in for a pint? And Peace started chatting with him and started slagging off the Dysons. Now, Brassington just moved away. But... Peace's behaviour may have been connected with the fact, as was later suggested in court, that he might have had a rendezvous in the Stag Hotel the night before with Mrs Dyson. Now, during the murder trial, something might come of that. Eight that evening, Kate Dyson put a little boy aged five to bed told him a bedtime story, came downstairs to their little back parlour where her husband was sitting in an armchair. He was reading the paper. And she put on her patterns, a Sheffield version of clogs, and went to the outside toilet. They used to call it a closet back in them days. I'm just snipping down the lane for a... Just popped to the closet. The water closet, WC. And that was in a passage at the side of the terrace of houses it was a moonlit night as well now now Charlie Peace said at the court case that Mrs Dyson had whistled for him she denied this of course her closet visit concluded she opened the door and pulled up her drawers and Peace stood before her gun in hand Speak, or I'll fire. Now, she shrieked, panicked, slammed the door and locked it. Mr. Dyson heard the scream, rushed out the back door of his house and around the corner of the building because these closets were, in those days, kept a little bit away from the houses. But his wife opened the door to the closet and he pushed past her, knocking her to the ground. He was chasing peace down the passage, a dark, foreboding passage where you could hardly see your hand in front of your face. Got to the forecourt, ran across a whole batch of steps, ran along the pavement. And according to Mrs Dyson, the two men never came to grips. Peace said there was a struggle and he fired one shot to frighten Dyson 
He said me blood was up. I knew if I was captured, it would mean transportation for life to Australia. I didn't want to go down under. That made me determined to get away. His second shot hit Dyson in the forehead and lifted the entire front of his skull from his body. The two shots were fired in quick succession and Dyson fell onto his back in the darkness as even at a distance Mrs. Dyson knew her man was gone. Murder! You bloody villain! You've shot my husband! Peace raced across the road, jumping over garden walls, over the top of sheds, until eventually got past the houses to a field, started running across the field. And in doing so, he dropped some of his personal belongings, including about 20 notes and letters that he had written back and forth from Mrs. Dyson. He dropped some letters and that card that Mr. Dyson had given him, demanding that he keep away. All of those things, very important for a court case to establish whether this was murder. To see handwritten notes from a woman who had denied having anything to do with the man. So there he was, pelting it, jumping over every fence he came to, trying to get as far away as possible. The notes, what a giveaway. Things like, you can give me something as a keepsake if you like. We'll see you as soon as I can. You mustn't venture, he's watching me. Sometimes Peace's selfishness shown itself by drop me a drink in, send me a drink, make me a pie. All this showing the jury exactly what the whole thing was about. This wasn't a one-sided persecution of a family. There was more to it. Dyson's head, wide open, brain hanging out of the skull, splattering the pavement and running down the cobbles. The top of the cobble relatively dry. The inside of the cobbles a blood red little pieces of skull also fired across the pavement. His body, still dripping with blood and internal fluids, ended up being carried into Gregory's shop and house, and then across to Dyson's own house, where they brought a doctor, a surgeon, and of course the police. The surgeon, whose name was Harrison, sat him in a chair, bullet hole in his left temple, the bullet still in Dyson's brain, despite the fact he'd lost part of the top of his head. He had died at about half ten that night, so even as he lay there on the path, there may have been a chance for him to be saved had they got him help quicker. Now. From that moment on, Charlie Peace, who thought he was on the run from that warrant that was out for his arrest, 
absolutely really was on the run. This time for murder, they even slapped a reward on his head, £100, if he could be caught. Now, £100 back then was a fortune. Everybody was looking out for him, even the poor who he thought he had some kind of, of camaraderie with. He tried to disguise his two missing fingers on his left hand, one of them a deformed little stump, by putting a tube over the arm, which he put an iron hook on the end of. So it looked like he was actually minus a hand and an arm, when in fact he had a full hand, and of course having a thumb allowed him to do things with it, but not when he became this new person. He called himself to anybody that would ask, one-armed Jemmy. And then he decided as Jemmy, Charlie Peace had gone. He was no more. But Jemmy could start being a burglar again. And off he went with his hook off. But during the day, all was with the hook on as a burglar, using both of his hands to climb up. It's even said that on almost a hundred occasions, Peace was in a room where people were sleeping, rifling the way through their side chests and boxes and taking whatever jewellery and cash he could find. But he was in their room whilst they slept. He burgled all over the place, didn't just stick to Sheffield. He went as far as Nottingham, Derby, even to Bristol and Oxford and back up to Hull, where it used to be one of his stamping grounds. His disguise seemed to be so perfect that his own daughter, Jennifer, failed to recognise him. And during a burglary in Hull, a guy called Johnson fired two shots at him, both of them just missing. One of the shots actually killed the man's own cage bird. A canary hit it clear in the chest, sending yellow feathers in all directions, adding to Peace's panic. Peace then decided to nip back to Nottingham, where he'd bumped into another widow aged in her 30s called Susan Thompson. She also called herself Susan Bailey. She also called herself Susan Gray. She also called herself Susan Thompson. She also called herself Susan Grigg, which tells you she was up to all kinds too. They lived together as man and wife, though never married, and Peace kept committing the burglaries. She kept fencing and getting rid of whatever he came in with until the police one day heard that the guy with a hook doesn't always have a hook. He's got a hand under there. Someone had spotted through the window and taking the hook off. So he escaped out of a back window and bush. He was off to London where he found lodgings in the Lambeth area. And after a few weeks, Susan, whatever her surname is, joined him. And then Hannah Ward and her son suddenly arrived, much to Susan, whatever she's called, dissatisfaction. So they're all living together, two women, Peace and the son. And the police later believed 
that the child on many occasions had to protect his mother from a sudden death because peace, although he had to go along with housing her and looking after her, wanted rid so he could continue his romance with the multi-named Susan. On several occasions, Hannah was punched into unconsciousness. She had her jaw broken, many a rib snapped, and yet still she stayed there and kept her mouth shut. The Peace household decided Lambeth wasn't for them. The police was just starting to ask about him, so he moved to Greenwich Village before settling in Evelina Road, Nunhead near Peckham. Hannah installed in the basement with her son, Charlie in the other rooms with Susan, Susan Thompson. We don't know whether it was the first Susan Thompson or Susan with all the names, but she was known as a dreadful, nauseous woman. Anybody that talked about her described her as a drunk, high on drugs and snuff. They would pass themselves off as Mr. and Mrs. Thompson, and a son would be born. Now, you might think that there wasn't a lot of money about, and there wasn't really, but the house was richly furnished. It had a lot of, well, frankly, other people's possessions in there. And Peace, on his woman's behest, wouldn't just steal jewellery and money. She would say, oh, I would like a little cabinet for that corner. He'd come back with a cabinet. Oh, I would like a chaise long for the lounge. He'd steal a chaise long from people's houses. He was a burglar. He also would steal dogs, cats, rabbits, canaries, parrots, and even two cockatoos. And what a noisy household it must have been for any neighbour. Now, worse than that, as you know, Peace could play the violin a bit. And he would have late-night parties. You couldn't call them dinner parties. It's just inviting a dozen people back from the pub. And there he'd play the fiddle, a fiddle that he'd actually made for himself. And he would recite rude and filthy monologues and try to sing along with the rest. It's amazing how good a singer you sound when you're drunk. But he continued burgling. That was his thing. On a couple of occasions, people had been half smothered and the police thought with this different modus operandi, Peace was beginning to push his own envelope. On one occasion, he punched a sleeping man in the throat, almost killing him, just so that the man could see his goods just going out the door, unable to identify Peace or Thompson or whatever he was called then because of a scarf around his face and both hands. Everybody knew this guy had a hook. One-armed Jemmy. So he started driving around South London in his pony and trap looking for cribs, he said. I'm looking for cribs, and when's I find the best crib, then I'll crack it. Burglet. 
He'd go back that night with his tools in his violin case. And he dressed well when he was out there because the police never stop anybody who wears really good clothes. Always looked incredibly different than he did back in his Sheffield days. He shaved off his beard but had a massive moustache. He dyed his hair black. He, he even stained his face so his complexion was different. He wears yeah, a massive pair of spectacles. He became more successful. He became an incredible burglar. I hate and loathe burglars for what they do, but he was a good one. More often than not, he would leave the home taking what he wanted without doing any harm. Unless he'd still not quite got rid of the drink in his system when he wanted the world to see what he was doing. It's that thing I was telling you about at the beginning. This egotism to, to almost want to get caught, to nearly get caught, just to prove that you have the power over it. So much more successful he was. Every Sunday, he and Mrs. Thompson went off to church and they met a lot of really nice and genuine people. Problem is, Mrs. Thompson hung out with the wrong church crowd, the drunks and drunkards, and when she'd had a few drinks, she sometimes spoke of what her husband got up to thinking, well, these women are rough women themselves. They'll not mind. But it seems someone minded, and minded very much indeed, because they called the police. They appeared at the house in huge numbers in the early hours of Thursday in October 1878. They're on the suburbs just southeast of Greenwich Park, and at two o'clock, one of the police officers saw a flickering light in the back room of number two, St. John's Park. Along with another policeman and a sergeant, Sergeant Brown, they went round to the front of the house and rang the bell, while the other two police waited by the garden wall at the rear. They saw the roving light within the house go out and a figure make a swift exit, half leaping through the dining room window, jumping onto the lawn, onto a forward roll, back up to his feet. The police gave chase, running across moonlit gardens, hedgerows, cobbled streets. Six yards away from grabbing him, Peace stopped, turned around and shouted, Keep back! Get back! You come near me and I'll shoot you! And the policeman said, You'd better not. Peace fired into the darkness three times, narrowly missing the constable's head. The policeman, not deterred, you could blame him if he had been, he just ran at Peace, who fired a fourth shot that also missed. You bugger! I'm going to settle you this time, said Peace, as he fired again, the fifth shot, rattling up and into the policeman's arm just above the elbow. The policeman, angry as hell, and now 
arguably even more angry, hit Peace with his own gun several times until the nose had moved and a number of teeth had fired from bloody sockets. Peace was lying there, squealing, as the policeman reached uh, into one of his pockets for handcuffs, as Peace seemed to be looking for another weapon. But by then, the other policeman and Sergeant Brown had arrived and come to the officer's assistance. Charlie Peace was overpowered. While he was being searched, Peace jerked, trying to make another escape. And he was knocked unconscious with one of the policemen's truncheons. They found a spirit flask loaded full of brandy, a checkbook in a fake name, a letters case, all stolen from the house. They were found in his possession, as well as a crowbar, an auger, a jemmy, a centre bit, a hand vase, a couple of chisels, a gimlet. This was a burglar's toolkit. The shot police officer, Robinson, was now feeling very queasy uh, through loss of blood. The other two police took charge of the captive and took him to Park Road Police Station. Now, that was fairly near the Naval College at Greenwich and not far from the legend that is the River Thames. And there he was charged with burglary and the wounding of PC Robinson with intent to murder. Now, this is where it gets complicated. He gave his name as John Ward and when they asked him where he lived, he said, find out for yourselves. His northern accent coming out. Now, the police inspector, whose name was John Bonney, was at Blackheath Road Police Station. He was put in charge of the case, along with uh, a detective inspector, Henry Phillips, who would later come into it. He was head of a new division that Scotland Yard had just formed called the CID, the Criminal Investigation Department. D.I. Phillips wrote about how repulsive Peace's appearance was and if you want to go and see what Peace actually looked like there's an exact image of him in Madame Tussauds and it remains there to this day so on the 10th of October in 1878 the police tried to get any information they could from a bloody minded burglar that's all they thought if you want to know where I live, you can look for yourself. I'm not going to tell you. That's your business. I keep my business to myself. And whenever he became insolent, Bonnie threatened to thrash him. All to no purpose. Peace knew what the police could do and what they couldn't do back then. The two inspectors decided to try a trap. They tried something that certainly wouldn't have been sanctioned by any legal help that Peace could have had, had he asked for it. When the prisoner was remanded and put in one of the police cells, they put a police officer, looking like a criminal, in the cell with him. He was pushed in head first, sprawling himself on the floor, so he looked like the police 
didn't think too much of him either. And this new person in his cell started swearing and using threatening language what he would do to the jailer if he lets me get me hands on him. I'll choke him, I'll punch him, I'll rip his whatever off. Mr Ward then gave a little bit of advice to his new friend. Young man, never kick up a row with the police. It's a bad plan. You'll always find out that they get the best of you. Now, the policeman stayed in there a while, and yet peace revealed nothing about his own circumstances. Other than he'd been beaten up, he'd been punched, he had his nose broken by the arresting policeman. Then they charged him with burglary after he had been assaulted. Peace was then sent to Newgate Prison. Back then, a horrible reputation for, frankly, allowing people to die in their own cells, to kill one another as the police turned a blind eye. Now, Peace was visited by the police on many occasions. And the police officer wrote in his log, This man is very talkative and he boasts of all of his misdeeds as if there was something to be proud of. He is religious-minded, though not being terribly Christian. And to be honest, if you were just to meet him in the street, you may think he's just a nice, quiet old man. He was actually an absolute raving hypocrite. Now, the following month, John Ward, Peace's new name, was charged and tried at the Central Criminal Court at the Old Bailey, 19th of November in 1878, with the attempted murder of Police Constable Edward Robinson. The judge, Mr Justice Hawkins, took a dim view of anyone who did anything against the police. They were trying to build up the police's reputation in a London where it didn't have a terribly good one. So, they had a prosecutor and a man called Williams who would speak up on the prisoner's behalf. After only four minutes, four minutes, the jury had found Peace guilty. And the clerk of the court asked if he had anything to say before judgment be pronounced. The prisoner made a long, frankly, whingy, whiny speech that apparently impressed most of the listeners, except the judge. He said, My Lord, I have not been fairly dealt with, and I swear before God I never had the intention to kill that policeman. All I meant was to frighten him in order that I might get away. If I had the intention to kill him, I could easily have done it, but I never had that intention to kill him. I declare I did not fire five shots. I only fired four, and if your lordship will look at the pistol, you will see that it goes off very easily. And the sixth barrel went off of its own accord after I was taken into custody, and it went off at the station. At the time the fifth shot was fired, the constable had hold of my arm, 
and the pistol went off quite by accident. I really did not know the pistol was still loaded, and I hope, my lord, you will have mercy upon me. I feel that I have disgraced myself, and I am not fit to live nor die. I am not prepared to meet my God, but I fear that my career has made to appear much worse than it really is. Oh, my lord, do have mercy upon me, and I assure you that you shall never repent it. Give me one more chance of repenting and preparing myself to meet my God. As you hope for mercy yourself at the hands of the great God, do have mercy upon me, a most wretched, miserable man, a man that am not fit to die, am not fit to live, but with the help of my God, I will try to become a good man. And he went on and on and on. And then the judge said, Are you finished? And peace, or ward, was sentenced to penal servitude for life. Now the judge called PC Robinson forward, commended his bravery and said, I shall recommend you for promotion and we shall also declare a reward of 25 pounds. Robinson was promoted to sergeant and for a little while, a waxwork of him stood in Madame Tussauds next to that of peace. Now, the prisoner was incarcerated then in Pentonville Prison, another prison with a horrific reputation, especially back in the 1870s. They said it was a preparatory prison for all convicts sentenced to penal servitude. Here they would perform at least the first nine to 12 months of their sentence under what was known as the solitary system. Now by this time, on the way travelling from one prison to another, he got recognised by another Sheffield man who said, Well, as I live and breathe, it's Charlie Peace. And of course, one of the police officers knew this man as John Ward. So, Peace, we're going to have to have a look into that name too. And they discovered he was also wanted for the murder of Arthur Dyson back in Sheffield. So, Back to trial again, and back to the old Bailey. They dragged him back to Newgate Jail, where he was attacked in prison with a man with a shank, a sharpened, snapped spoon that they'd tried to emasculate him. They'd punctured his testicle sack with it. So, a gentleman visited him. His name was Mr. Bryon. And when he arrived... They tailed him when he left the jail and returned home to Peckham. So they called on him that same night. They were absolutely in doubt as to who this man was, but they thought he might be an accomplice of Charlie Peace. However, we took a straightforward course, said Phillips and his memoirs. After having a look at the house that Mr. Bryan resided, seemed of reputable appearance, not at all like the haunt of a burglar. We were fortunate in finding Mr. Bryan at home, and more fortunate in finding out we had met a very respectable man, a map maker, who had apparently believed Mr. Thompson to be equally reputable, and that's why he'd come a-visiting. Now, when they discovered Peace's full story, 
that he kept changing to different names. That one day he had two hands, on another day he had a hook. But the police weren't daft. They went back to the house on another occasion and discovered that next door there was Susan Thompson, or whatever her name was, a tall, angular-featured woman. After a few hours, they were sick of asking questions, but they begged her to tell them who the man was. She refused point blank until they burst into her bedroom and found small silver watches by the dozen, jewellery piled up in drawers. This was Charlie Piece of Sheffield's home. They were determined to try and get all of the stuff back to the rightful owners, if they possibly could. They had to go in delving into the story of Charlie Peace, because the Peace family had declared that Charles Peace had died in a coal pit in Derbyshire. And the woman who claimed it, Peace's wife, obviously wanting to get any monies that may be uh, coming her way through insurances, said he was a man he'd lost two of his fingers, described Peace to a T. But he had not died in prison. He said to her, you should visit a man we have in our cells. You may find that coal pit disaster never occurred. Now, at first he wondered if Ward in Newgate Prison was peace. He put a whole load of photographs in front of people that knew Ward and knew peace, and they both picked out exactly the same person. Surely it had to be the same. On finding Hannah Ward, they would have an answer. And they searched, and they searched, and they searched. And finally, she was found at a cottage whose real occupant was a collier. But she was said to be working as a housekeeper for him. Now, Peace didn't know that Hannah had been arrested and he beseeched the police to let her off. He wrote, My Hannah, she is innocent. She knows nothing of my doings. It's me, it's not her. But she appeared before the Sheffield magistrates, was remanded for a week, and then charged at Bow Street at four in the morning with receiving stolen goods. Now, that might sound a minor crime next to murder, but back then, it was enough to get you sent to Australia. It was enough to get you imprisoned for life. She was eventually discharged on the grounds that she was Peace's wife, although it was never actually proven by civil record. After her case was dismissed, Peace went back uh, from Pentonville, handcuffed by two warders, on an express train all the way up to Sheffield Station, passing through Worksop, clamouring through the small villages, zipping along the Yorkshire border, where the railway line is very close to the canal. Peace recognised the place and was looking for his chance 
to escape. He said he wanted to go to the toilet, and for that um, purpose, the window was lowered, and he faced it. He was wearing handcuffs and with a chain six inches long, so he had to, some use with his hands, and he immediately didn't we? He sprang through the window with his tackle out. One of the warders caught him by the left foot and held him suspended with the head downward. He kicked the warder with his right foot and struggled with all of his might to get free. Another warder was unable to offer any assistance because the open window was so small. The warder then tried to stop the train. All this time, the struggles going on between the warder and the convict, and eventually, Peace kicked off his shoe, hitting the warder's head and his own head, hitting the footboard of the carriage, and he fell onto the lane next door. The train eventually shuddered to a halt, and a couple of warders ran for over a mile back along the railway lane and found Peace lying there in the snow. Charlie Peace surely was dead. Fallen from a moving train, hitting his head, he had to be dead. But he wasn't. As he began to recover consciousness, a huge hole in his brow, and you could clearly see the skull beneath. He suffered great pain. He was placed back in the guard's van and the train arrived at Sheffield Station at 20 past nine. By that time, a huge crowd had assembled. This was their local hero villain. Charlie Peace of Sheffield had come home. On reaching the police station, he was carried to his cell where he was suffering from a severe scalp wound. Concussion of the brain, they said and he appeared to be completely exhausted. He was vomiting, not just over the police, actually aiming at the police so that he could vomit on them. If people were looking at him, screaming his name, he would vomit at them too. He really was a nasty piece of work. They laid him on a bed in a cell, covered him with a few rags and rugs, and there, a little old man with blood dripping from his head, guarded by two men he knew his time was up a police officer from Sheffield who knew Charlie Peace well said now come on Charlie you know you've got no chance let's have none of your hanky panky games here you're gonna have to take what we give you and he did a coward when subdued like so many are they gave him some sniffing salts to try and wake him up. He kept quiet. In fact, he was so ill, the court, instead of staying in the court building, the court went to him. They're all standing outside the cell in candlelight. In bandages, he cursed, swore at them, groaned, whined on and muttered. He kept muttering, what are we in here for? What's all this? 
Oh, I wish to God there was something across my shoulders. It's really cold. There's no justice here. Oh, dear. If I'd have killed myself, it would be no matter. I ought to have a reminder. I feel I want it, and I must have one. Everything was a problem. When he got in front of the judge, one of the prosecution's principal witnesses stepped forward. A woman. She took the oath but kept her veil covering her face. And Peace said, Will you be kind enough to take your veil off? You haven't even kissed the bloody book. At one point, he even put his feet on the table. And at the end of this hearing, he was dragged off to the cell, effing and blinding at the police and the judge. He arrived at Wakefield, where people were far less sympathetic to him. He spent a few days writing letters, one of them, to the so-called Mrs. Thompson. We have the letter. It says, My dear Sue, this is a fearful affair which has befallen me, but I hope you will not forsake me, as you have been my bosom friend and you have oft times said you loved me and would die for me. What I hope and trust you will do is to sell the goods I left you to raise money to engage a barrister to save me from the perjury of that villainous woman, Kate Dyson. It will have to be done at once, as the Assizes commences on January 28th. I hope you will not forget the love we have had for each other. Do your best for me. I should like you to write or come to see me if you can. I am very ill from the effects of the jump from the train. I tried my, to kill myself to save all further trouble and distress and to be buried at Darnell. I remain your ever-true lover till death. And he signed himself John Thompson, Charles Peace. We even have Sue's reply to that. She wrote, Dear Jack, I received your letter and I'm truly sorry to receive one from you from a prison. And in regard to what you ask, I have parted with all of the things in my possession. I sold some of the goods before Hannah and I went away, and I shared with her the money that was in the house, and what I had had to be sold for my substance, as you well know. I have nothing to depend on. I have not a friend of my own. What friends I had have now all turned their backs on me because of you. My life is indeed most miserable. I am most grateful for the few friends I retain. I'm sorry you made such a rash attempt on your life, for your sufferings are greater than they would have been. You are doing me a great injury by saying I've been out of work with you. Do not die with such a base falsehood upon your conscience, for you know I am young and have my home and character to redeem. I pity you and myself to think we should have met. In conclusion, I hope and trust you will be very penitent and that we shall meet in heaven, yours, Sue Thompson. So, Charlie Peace, 4th of February in 1879. This time, he's at Leeds Assizes. And a lot of women watching this Lothario, ugly Lothario, a lot of them even took opera glasses so they could really get a close look at Charlie Peace, this wiry, unshaven, bushy-tashed man with a scarred head and nasty black eye beneath the wound that he'd got from the train. Mrs Dyson, although embarrassed by the implications of some of the defence's questions, especially about how she teased him on, 
behaved with a degree of flippancy. She even tried to make it into a joke. When asked by somebody how wide the passage was outside the closet where her husband was shot, she said, Well, I don't know. I'm not an architect. So they realised, even the jury who wanted to convict Peace, it would not be as simple as that. They wanted to work out about the shots being fired. And then she went back on everything. She said, I can't say whether he, that's my husband, tried to get hold of him or not. I don't think he touched him. He didn't get close enough. Now, Charlie Peace said they were obviously in close contact, rolling about where accidentally the gun finally went off. Well, she showed in disposition... I do not believe my husband got hold of him. He did not even try to get hold of him. So on one case, he says he didn't get hold of him, but he was chasing him. On another, he didn't even try to get hold of him. This seemed to be two separate things. Do you remember, said the jury? I can't say I do, she said. Will you swear that you did not see them? I won't swear that I did. I won't swear that I didn't. This was getting to become a farce. They pressed on. Whatever you said before the magistrate is correct. Is that true? Mrs. Dyson said yes. Did this man touch peace with his fist? No, says Mrs. Dyson. The bullet touched him. So... They then became far more successful working out that Mrs. Dyson had had a sexual association with Peace and that Peace had given her a ring and she continued to meet him even after the husband expressed a great dislike of him. They even had photographs of her with him, letters and notes all found in that field as he ran away. Witnesses came and went, but Mrs. Dyson would be the clincher and the fact that she clearly saw Peace shoot him. That it was all that really the court needed to know. Peace was taken to Armley Jail in Leeds where, thoroughly penitent, he decided to make a full confession of every crime he'd ever committed, a chance to boast, to the Reverend J. H. Littlewood, vicar of Darnall. And he revealed that four months before the killing of Arthur Dyson. He had shot and killed a police constable in Manchester. So from one murder, it's now two, plus the attempted murder of another constable. When Peace described it, it all came to life. The night was a dark one in a fairly posh neighbourhood that was known as Wally Range. Big houses, huge gardens, more than ordinarily deserted, when Peace and a group of young labourers decided they were going to go in there and do a bit of harm. They moved like shadows. On the way out of one of the posh houses, two shots 
fired in rapid succession. The young labourers ran out to see what was going on, and they found Police Constable Cock lying in the road with a huge bullet hole through his right breast. Obviously, the gun had been fired really close to his chest. There was a hole in his uniform, a hole in his shirt, a hole in the policeman. Then, the sound of wheels and a night cart coming along. And the body of this insensible policeman was conveyed to the nearest surgery. But he didn't survive for very long. So these labourers were brought to add more weight upon the shoulder of peace. And peace watched the whole trial go by. They told everything that happened. He stayed silent, saying, I just hope you will recommend mercy, when peace had shown no mercy to anybody. He'd watched the whole trial, in fact, from the public gallery in chains. Somebody said, why did you do all of those things? And he said, well, what man would have done anything else? When you're there, you do what needs to be done. And I did. So, the Reverend Littlewood was brought forward to talk about Peace's confession because Peace had also written a confession for the police officer Phillips from the CID. A detailed map drawn by peace showed where everybody was the night that Koch was killed and the night that Dyson was killed to be honest it was a slam dunk it was very likely he was going to be executed for the death of Dyson the fact that they'd also solved another murder particularly the murder of a police officer was a bonus Charlie Peace, Bushy Tash, asking for wax for his Tash before he went to his final walk to the gallows. Have to look me best. And he was hanged in Armley Jail in Leeds. Eight o'clock in the morning on the 25th of February, 1879. Now, during his last days, he spent writing thousands, literally thousands of letters with prayers, telling everybody how much of a Christian he'd become. But on his last breakfast, he threw the plate on the floor. This is bloody rotten bacon! And when a warder began banging on the door, peace waited and effed and blinded in a way that his new Christian image would never have stooped, and that was only days earlier. On the morning of his execution, after he waxed his tash, a huge bushy affair, and he'd made his clothes as clean as they could be, and he looked as good as was possible, a warder started banging on the door. Time for you, Peace. Well, you're in a hell of a hurry. Are you going to be hanged or am I? And on the scaffold, he was offered the chance to put a white hood over his head. He says, no, don't. I want to look, well, I want to look as good as I can for my speech. And then another whingy, whiny speech of forgiveness 
how sad he was that it happened, how he repented everything, how he trusts in the great God Almighty because God has now become his greatest friend and ally. A number of newspaper people were there and they wrote down a few of his last words. One of them was, I should like a drink. Have you a drink to give me? And the executioner, Marwood, waited till he was kind of halfway through that sentence to release the trap door. As it fell, Charlie Peace zoomed through the hole. The vertebrae at the base of his skull fractured, dislocated, the spinal cord severed. He shook. He shook again. His eyes seemed to stare out as if they could still see you. They stared at the journalists who looked there. One of them was sick. He couldn't hold it in. He just watched an evil man get what he deserved. Or at least that's what he'd be writing. They heard the crack as he fell. They knew he was dead. And the coroner on the death certificate read, Hanging by virtue of the sentence of law. Charlie Peace was already ahead of them when it came to writing an epitaph. He wrote uh, the memorial card for himself and he asked that they print them in jail. And this is what it said. In memory of Charles Peace, who was executed in Armley Prison, Leeds, Tuesday, February 25th, 1879. For that I'd done but never intended. And left it at that. The tube that Charlie Peace had used to cover his arm. A crucible, a collapsible ladder from his house, are all housed in Scotland Yard's amazing Black Museum. And you can see them to this day. I think the one thing that it shows more than anything else is isn't it funny how one little thing, a flirtation, a kind word, can lead to death, misery, and execution. Alan Robson's Grizzly Tales. <laughs>